This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is a collaboration between the School of Complex Adaptive Systems, the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences, and the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. It is Sunday, December 4th. Sean, it's a rainy day today in Phoenix, and it's a, it's a new day with a new owner of Twitter. Well, we've had a new owner for a little while, but I think we've had a little bit of a, a chance to start to process potentially some of the changes, but it's, I would argue, not to, not to tell the end of the story, but it's still too soon to see what's going to happen, right? I feel like a stormy gray day is a nice context for talking about the new Twitter under, under, under Elon Musk. Yes, I think folks predicted a sort of monsoon slash hurricane and there was a bit of that with the layoffs and other things but i think we can look at some of the activities and note that there is some learning right i think that some of Musk's statements when he first came in you know about free speech and anything that's legal unbridled speech some of that's starting to be tempered as he learns how complicated this really is yeah and i think that's a nice preview for for today's conversation i you know, when when Musk first took the reins, people had all kinds of dire predictions about the platform, both from an like from an engineering and culture perspective, from or I should say from an engineering perspective, from a from a kind of corporate culture perspective. And then this kind of third leg of the stool, which is just what's the climate of Twitter going to be like? And, you know, I, I think our, our goal today is not really to talk too much about engineering and, and corporate culture, right? That's not our that's not our bailiwick. But but we can talk about is in the wake of this $44 billion purchase, what is, what is Twitter shaping up to be like in, in the near term? $44 billion, by the way, is enough money to buy everyone on the planet a box of Hostess cupcakes. That's some tasty, well-preserved food. Yeah, it's always important to put large purchases like this in context. And that's fitting, too, considering that he only completed his purchase on October 28th. So it's been just a little bit over a month. And that was kind of a Halloween gift to those that were talking about Twitter at that moment in time, I think. That's right. Well, well, let's get into it. There's let's let's deal with this kind of assumption leading up to. And there's been a little bit of analysis after the fact, this idea that Twitter would become a hellscape. Now, Musk himself was kind of very vocal and continues to be vocal about a very absolutist position about what he calls free speech, which is he doesn't really want to do any content moderation on the platform. And people were making some predictions that that would have some very deleterious effects on the environment of Twitter. Yeah, just like a stance that anything, as long as it's legal, anything goes. Yeah. And I, I think that had some people, you know, feeling pretty afraid of what, what, what that might produce. Well, and we don't, we still don't know. I think one thing to point to is that we had midterm elections happened, you know, right after his purchase. And I think we're in a bit of a trough of political activity with, in the United States, at least with, with, except for the Georgia. But so I think, you know, we're not seeing this activity peak as high as it will, say, in like another maybe like six months, you know, so it takes a while for all of these policies to change, right? There are bureaucracies that were set up, there are automated systems that were set up, that it takes a while for a lot of those to untangle and those changes to be implemented. So I think 
you know, the election, we really didn't see any changes. And he stated that he wasn't going to make any changes with respect to policy. And I think now we're starting to see a, a tiny bit of some of those policies. But over time, I think they're going to roll back to a lot of the original policies with my prediction. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of times people don't appreciate or especially when we hear arguments from the alt-right and from alt-tech that content moderation is a bit of a repertoire approach, even if it's not perfectly coordinated all the time, but that, you know, it's not just a matter of deleting people or censoring people in a particular way that platforms have a number of different levers they can pull to try to tone down some content that they think that they don't want on their platform. And so that can mean, you know, reducing the, the kind of impact of particular posts or the visibility that can mean removing the posts. It could mean temporary bans. A lot of times when we, you know, frame this as a free speech or no proposition, that's, you know, proposing a binary proposition, whereas most of the times there's a kind of sliding scale. Right. And that, again, I think that ranges from, like you said, we, we often think of content removal or we think of removal of an account in order, you know, as this content moderation. But I think it's important to also note that content moderation is different from censorship. And free speech is not really a thing on a commercial platform, right? A lot of, you'll see a lot of claims on the right that they have a right to free speech or First Amendment right to speech, free speech on social media, but they don't because that First Amendment only applies to government spaces. And Facebook is a commercial, I mean, sorry, Twitter is a commercial space. I mean, Facebook is too, but Twitter is a it's commercial space. Yeah. Yeah. And it, so, I mean, and, and we've also, you know, we've talked about that in the past and we've also talked about how simple rules can really have big effects on platforms. And I think simple, you know, Musk trying to have a very simple, simply stated content moderation policy um, that does, I think people, it's perfectly reasonable to expect massive changes in the platform by just what appears to be a very simple, simple rule. In the aftermath of the purchase, you know, there have been some kind of high profile stories published by Washington Post, New York Times that have, have made claims like, the amount of hate speech on Twitter increased after Musk took control. That's New York Times, Washington Post. The number of followers for conservative politicians increased after Musk took control, whereas on average for high-profile liberal politicians, those followers have dropped off. Starting to be a kind of early judgment on the platform or this kind of early narrative emerging that the kind of climate of Twitter is shifting right. What do you think of those kinds of claims? Well, I think that in some ways, even before the purchase, right, there was a lot of grasping at straws, like, well, what will happen? What will Musk do? This is going to end Twitter. This is going to end, you know, any sort of way that we can control mis and disinformation or hate speech or any of those things. And then afterwards, right now, we're sort of grasping at any sort of quantitative information that we can say, like, here are the changes. So one, I think we have to slow our roll a little bit. Um, because it's going to take time for us to see these changes kind of reverberate throughout the system and also understand the impacts. Uh, the other thing is that in both of these analyses, these are pretty simplistic analyses of something that's a really complex phenomenon. Does that make sense a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think follower count is a really interesting barometer to try out. But I'm not sure if that tells the whole story. I think hate speech or trying to do analysis of, of what hate speech you detect is an interesting measurement, again, to try to, to try to use as a barometer here, but it's probably not the only one. I, I think 
you know, to, to your point of it being a little simplistic, one thing that I, I think is important to consider is that this is part of a surge before the election, where I think it's important to keep in mind that a key thing that was being tested in the elections this time around in the midterms were election conspiracies and were a particular kind of political messaging that was very arch and that was kind of infused with a particular kind of ideology that that might run into hate speech that that tends to be incredibly conservative or even alt-right. And so I think, you know, that election as a phenomenon, I think could play a part in the needle moving on some of these measurements that we're trying out here. Well, and I think, you know, we also, if we link to those conspiracy theories, so for example, if we take the Washington Post article on followers, if we look at more of the Republican followers that they, that they were doing the analysis on, a lot of those folks are peddlers of conspiracy theories. If you look at those on the Democratic side of the followers that they counts that they were, they were analyzing, those folks are not. Those folks are not prominent in conspiracy theory communities because those folks are not peddling those conspiracy theories. So I think looking at the follower counts alone and trying to find like kind of a single cause and say, look, see what, what Musk's actions have taken. And also we're attributing a, a, a large company with a very high profile and a high volume of social media posts. While Musk has a lot of control, there are a whole lot of bureaucratic systems within the company too. So he doesn't get credit for everything living or dying, I think. So, <clears throat> so I think looking at these follower counts this moment in time, you know, we also need to look at what other causal factors. Like you said, there's an election. Some of these folks are a lot more high profile. Some of these folks are getting a lot more news coverage. So if we look at Marjorie Taylor Greene or Jim Jordan or, or Ted Cruz, for example, the January 6th committee is actively investigating some of these folks. And so the news has been talking about them. So of course, there's going to be a growth in followers. And there, so there is like a natural kind of him and a ha of followers. But there's a whole, I think there are many causes that kind of go into contributing to this. And I think that that follower number is an interesting place to start, but a, a pretty poor idea of kind of single causality that must take over has changed their follower accounts alone. Yeah. And I think it's reasonable to assume that dropping a content moderation policy, we would expect more hate speech. I, that makes sense. But I think there's a chicken and egg argument here that, you know, dropping those content moderation policies means that there's going to be sustained present presence of hate speech on the platform. And obviously, it's too early to tell. And now I think a lot of factors coinciding, like, you know, yay, kind of going off on a number of different high profile events, I suppose, that would solicit this kind of communication. And we can't ignore that at all, right? He's kind of trending on social media every other day, it seems like lately. And so, yeah, back to your point, there's a lot of stuff rolling into this. And even though I think it's reasonable to assume that there might be more hate speech, because they're not trying to get rid of it. At the same time, the follower count, you know, that that one seems less straightforward to me as well. And it's not to to hate on the mainstream media here at all. They're trying to take a very complex topic and distill that into something that's understandable. So I think that's also important to give them credit for the work that they do. They're trying to translate something and sort of grasp at numbers at this moment in time because folks are really interested in this. So they want to feed what folks are interested in. Yeah, and I think no matter what, it, it deserves our attention that 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 consistently evaluating the climate of one of the world's most popular social media platforms, and certainly the United States' most popular social media platform, it's worth asking, and I would argue ha would have always been worth asking what the climate is on these platforms. And you know, plenty of scholars have done the work to to really 
evaluate what the climate of Twitter has been over time, right? And that's been really important to debunking these claims that there's a massive liberal bias and or any of those kind of things, right? But it's a nice reminder that it, it deserves vigilance. And we also, like you said, we have to take that longer view to understand, you know, these platforms change over time due to, you know, user participation, due to policy shifts, due to technological shifts in what they're doing. So that also has to be taken into account whenever we're talking about changes in the platform. We have to ground those analyses and those changes in all the other things that are also happening simultaneously. Yeah. And, and to that, you know, one thing that, that I looked into was some of the participation or the visits to other social media platforms in the alt tech sphere lately. And platforms like Gab, Getter, and Parler all saw surges in users leading up to the election. They too are surging in users. And so I think that that recasts some of what we might see as a kind of rise of, of conservative followers or followers for conservative politicians that, you know, what we see is a kind of bow wave of people across platforms who are more oriented towards conservative or extremely right-wing politicians, that Twitter is not the only actor here, that if you zoom out a little bit, you see a lot of participation by the alt-right on these other, other platforms. And what we've just, as we've discussed before, one platform is not a drop-in replacement for another. We have different types of conversations, different types of activities taking place on, on different platforms. So for example, I think as we've alluded to in the past, we've seen in our analysis of Parler on January 6th that politicians had different types of speech, right? And Twitter, their public speech was kind of like everyday political speech, you know, talking about tax bills and other kinds of things. But Super urbane, yeah. Their Parler speech, their speech in Parler was pretty in like incitement of violence, much more toxic, and those two, there was no overlap between the kinds of conversations that they were trying to have with the public on Parler versus Twitter. Yeah. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out now that moderation on Twitter has relaxed quite a bit. But I, if I had to bet, I would say that we're going to see some kind of maintenance of that division that you just outlined. And, and if for no other reason than audience, because different people are on Parler, different people are on Getter, and they optimize differently for what you see. And we saw, you know, through Parler and other kind of alt tech platforms that people who run campaigns know that they can get audiences more directly on some of these platforms than they would using Twitter or Facebook, irrespective of moderation policies now, right? So I would say that some of the audiences of, of, of how people self-select is still going to change how, you know, content, what content is going to be on one platform versus another. And yeah, I think that's important to note that this is not just kind of happening in a vacuum. A lot of this activity is strategic by high profile users. There, there's a plan in place. They plan, you know, politicians, high profile users, them and their media teams plan what types of posts they're going to put on Twitter, what types of posts they're going to put on Parler, what types of posts they'll put on Gab. And now on the left, we kind of have seen a, a discussion, right, a movement to Mastodon. And we'll see if that gets integrated into that strategy. But a lot of folks have moved to Mastodon and realized, well, this isn't as easy to use as, as Parler. I mean, sorry, as Twitter. It's a different type of platform. You know, again, 
there are going to be different conversations that are going to happen in, in Mastodon than there, there will on Twitter. And we saw folks say in mass, like we're leaving the parlor, but then they continued their activity in Twitter as well as adding on their, their new activity in parlor. Yeah, I, I think of of Parler. Parler has such a small ratio of regular users. You know, you've got tens of thousands of regular users and maybe hundreds of thousands, and I can't remember the exact amount of 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 total population in Parler, right? But it's hundreds of thousands or maybe even a, a couple million. I would I would have to go back and check on that. But the ratio I think is, you know, maybe 30, 40,000 regular users on Parler. It's just such a small proportion of people who are regularly on the platform. And so, you know, some of these platforms we need to allow in the future, right, that some of them may boom or bust around specific events. And then some of them may have more consistent participation. And they're going to have different audiences as well. And those audiences are going to vary as people try to dial in their platform diet moving forward. Well, like, as you said, the kind of external events have happened, right? So Parler was deplatformed by Amazon. And that then changed the platform, even though it kind of reemerged as like a phoenix from the ashes no pun intended, it, you know, it was a different beast than it was before it was deplatformed. So then we have this other sort of external, right now, internal, right? Elon Musk coming into Twitter. So a question is how will this sort of like punctuation change Twitter as a platform, change what users do. But I think we often, we want to go back to like, why are people on Twitter, right? Part of this is the network effect. Part of this is the design of the platform. This is why there's different types of activities. You know, we kind of consider Facebook the place that we connect to our families, so to speak, right? It's more more private conversation, my private feed-ish kind of thing, if I can overgeneralize, or you can object. And then we see Twitter as the more of this public conversation because you're defaulting to this, this sort of public status exchange. So again, each one's not a drop-in for the other. And so those that said kind of the demise of Twitter will happen quickly, you know, Twitter's still going. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I, I think you've, I, I, I agree with your characterization of, of both platforms. And I'm, you know, the other thing that, that strikes me about the, the purchase of Twitter is that it may have possibly created several precedents that might not be good. You know, like the celebrity owner of a social media platform is, is, is maybe not like an awesome idea. You know, I, I felt like for a minute there when Ye was going to purchase Parler or it looked like he might purchase Parler, I thought, I never thought that, science fiction would become real, but it was almost like, you know, if you've read the novel Neuromancer by William Gibson, it was almost like Wintermute and Neuromancer were combining to create some kind of super intelligence. So it was like, yay, and Parler are like those two giant forces in misinformation. And if they were to combine and create some kind of super force, it would be truly dystopian. But I think that kind of analogy aside, just, just the precedent for somebody, you know, treating a platform as their plaything that isn't a good precedent. That's not good for anybody. I mean, I guess, are we going back to the times of, you know, wealthy barons owning, you know, mainstream or media, just not mainstream, but owning media, right? We have Bezos owns the Washington Post. Musk now owns Twitter. Bezos kind of takes the hands off, so to speak, on Washington Post. It seems Musk has rolled up his sleeves and brought in a kitchen sink literally to the office on his first day. And Almost yay buying, you know, Parler was kind of interesting, but they broke up. They decided not to go with the sale. So that was, that was also interesting. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, yay was too radical even for Parler, which let's just leave that there. Let's leave that there. I, just, I think one other, one other thing, but he was too radical for Twitter because his account was just suspended. That's right. That's right. So, so 
so too radical for many tastes and and for many even if not very well disclosed ethical sensibilities i you know let's let's think let, let let's think though about about what what this means kind of moving forward and what we can expect so you know what's your do you have an expectation about about twitter in the coming months well i think that we're going to continue to stress about it and stress pretty hard about it. I think that the ex- intense amount of media attention has, you know, we're all kind of waiting with bated breath because every day on CNN, they're talking about what happened on Twitter and, you know, what is Musk going to do today? In some ways, it goes back to what our colleague Dan has said, right? Like a bit of stenography. We see this in media coverage is that Elon does something and then we get immediate media coverage of that, not even because it's newsworthy, but just because he's a very popular person. So I think the the kind of intense media coverage is going to continue. And then they're going to find some reason why to justify some of the intense coverage. Because like, look, that thing happened, right? So I think the media coverage is going to continue. But I I really think that that Musk is just going to find that this is way more complicated and difficult, right? Like this is not just an engineering problem. This is a human social platform interaction problem, which is super complicated and are problems that we don't know how to solve right now. Yeah, I think people are grieving a little bit. I think it, it one one way to read a lot of coverage of Twitter and a lot of people's responses to Twitter is they're grieving the old Twitter and they don't know what's going to happen next. But people definitely already miss what what we had before. I I think I think looking at this boom and bust cycle of people across platforms is going to be very interesting. But I also think that you know even if people aren't engaged on platforms, you know. It, or even if you know people's follower accounts go up or down, I don't think that changes. You know, one of the biggest mistakes we make about looking at Twitter is thinking that it's a magic mirror to our society, and it's not. It's one indicator, and so I think it's important that as we as we all look at Twitter and as Twitter commands so much of our attention, and even though it kind of deserves some of our attention in terms of evaluating what's going on there. I think it's important to remember that if something's not on Twitter or even if something's not going on on Gab or if users aren't trend, you know, aren't flocking to Parler anymore after the election, that doesn't change some of the more nefarious things going on, some of the political radicalization going on. Those things are still happening, even if we can't necessarily see it on Twitter or if the user activity isn't trending on Parler. So to put it another way, I think what you're saying is that mis and disinformation, the radicalization, all those things are adapting to the environment. And a lot of that activity took place in the shadows before. And so that's going to continue to take place in the shadows in the future. Yes, I think that's that's well put. And I I don't just because we don't see misinformation actively circulating on platform X doesn't mean that the necessary conditions culturally, politically, economically aren't continuing to happen and evolve, right? And so, you know, we have this idea that, you know, that this stuff is only bad around elections and it's not all the things that make it possible for these blooms of misinformation to appear on these social media platforms. They're still happening, right? This just goes back to the idea that misinformation is not just a platform problem. It's not just a technology problem. It is a cultural struggle. I feel like 
that is time for a, a really painful analogy. So if we think, you know, in between harvests, right, farmers have all this work to do on their fields of fertilizing and tilling and those kinds of things. And so we often focus with a laser on mis and disinformation during elections because I think it's easier to point to in many ways. But now there's all that kind of fertilization, tilling, planting of seeds that are happening right now to kind of soften the ground to get ready for the next election. And there's also misinformation about non-election things, like you said. Wow. So you've given us the hate harvest. Thank you, Sean. Time to plant uh, your hate seeds now, everyone. It, this it, it, it is, I think. And I think that's a an interesting concept. I, I, I think I buy it. And I, I like the analogy, too, that that we really are witnessing something kind of cyclical rather than, you know, a, a, a boom and bust of activity. It's really more just switching to a different activity more than anything else. So is there like a, a dis disinformation, misinformation, farmer's almanac equivalent? I think you've identified our next project. Well, like, okay. <laughs> certainly. All right. Well, I think this is, I don't know if I would call this a good place to end it, Sean, or even a hopeful place to end it, but I think contemplating the hate harvest is where we will end today. Thanks for joining us on this episode. Be thoughtful and be well. <laughs>